Northanger Abbey by Jane Austen, Volume 2, Chapter 5. Previously on Northanger Abbey, in Volume 2, we start out with Catherine having dinner with the Tilneys, and she gets some weird feelings about the general... And then we get to the second letter from James talking about the money situation, and Isabella doesn't seem happy about it, but they're still engaged. This is all overshadowed by the fact that Catherine gets invited to go to Northanger Abbey, which is the home of the Tilneys, which means she gets to go stay with Mr. Tilney, Miss Tilney, and their father, General Tilney, and she's super excited about it. We get, an, we get a conversation with Isabella and Catherine, where Isabella says that her brother John is in love with Catherine, and Catherine just throws all of that away, is not interested. She's not in love with John. But she does see Isabella flirting with Captain Tilney and is not happy about it. It's very concerned. And then she sees him even more together. She's flirting, she's dancing with Captain Tilney, giving all this attention. And she can't believe that Captain Tilney knows about... The fact that Isabella and James are engaged with how, how he's acting. She doesn't like how Isabella's acting either. She's really upset for her brother. Henry tries to make all of this seem okay and not that big of a deal. Downplay it. But I don't think particularly successfully. And we leave with just that odd sensation of we're not really sure what's going on. But James and Isabella are engaged and Isabella seems to prefer Captain Tilney and is spending all her time flirting with him instead. And now we are going to take our trip and we are off to Northanger Abbey in Chapter 5. Mr. and Mrs. Allen were sorry to lose their young friend, whose good humor and cheerfulness had made her a valuable companion, and in the promotion of whose enjoyment their own had been greatly increased. Her happiness in going with Miss Tilney, however, prevented their wishing it otherwise, and, as they were to remain only one more week in Bath themselves, her quitting them now would not be long felt. Mr. Allen attended her to Milsom Street, where she was to breakfast, and saw her seated with the kindest welcome among her new friends. But so great was her agitation in finding herself one of the family, and so fearful was she of not doing exactly what was right, and of not being able to preserve their good opinion, that, in the embarrassment of the first five minutes, she could almost have wished to return to him with him to Pulteney Street. Miss Tilney's manners and Henry's smile soon did away some of her unpleasant feelings, but still she was far from being at ease. Nor could the incessant attentions of the general himself entirely reassure her. Nay, perverse as it seemed, she doubted whether she might not have felt less, had she been less attended to. His anxiety for her comfort, his continual solicitations that she would eat, and his often expressed fears of her seeing nothing to her taste, though never in her life before had she beheld half such variety on a breakfast table, made it impossible for her to forget for a moment that she was a visitor. She felt utterly unworthy of such respect, and knew not how to reply to it. Her tranquillity was not improved by the general's impatience for the appearance of his eldest son, nor by the displeasure he expressed at his laziness when Captain Tilney at last came down. She was quite pained by the severity of his father's reproof, which seemed disproportionate to the offence, and much was her concern increased when she found herself the principal cause of the lecture. 
and that his tardiness was chiefly resented from being disrespectful to her. This was placing her in a very uncomfortable situation, and she felt great compassion for Captain Tilney without being able to hope for his goodwill. He listened to his father in silence and attempted not any defense, which confirmed her in fearing that the inquietude of his mind on Isabella's account might, by keeping him long sleepless, have been the real cause of his rising late. It was the first time of her being decidedly in his company, and she had hoped to be now able to form her opinion of him. But she scarcely heard his voice while his father remained in the room, and even afterwards, so much were his spirits affected, she could distinguish nothing but these words in a whisper to Eleanor. How glad I shall be when you are all off. The bustle of going was not pleasant. The clock struck ten while the trunks were carrying down, and the general had fixed to be out of Milson Street by that hour. His greatcoat, instead of being brought for him to put on directly, was spread out in the curricle in which he was to accompany his son. The middle seat of the chaise was not drawn out, though there were three people to go in it, and his daughter's maid had so crowded it with parcels that Miss Morland would not have room to sit. And so much was he influenced by this apprehension when he handed her in that she had some difficulty in saving her own new writing desk from being thrown out into the street. At last, however, the door was closed upon the three females, and they set off at a sober pace in which the handsome, highly-fed four horses of a gentleman usually perform a journey of thirty miles. Such was the distance of Northanger from Bath, to be now divided into two equal stages. Catherine's spirits revived as they drove from the door, for with Miss Tilney she felt no restraint, and, with the interest of a road entirely new to her, of an abbey before and a curricle behind, she caught the last view of Bath without any regrets, and met with every milestone before she expected it. The tediousness of a two-hour bait at Petit France, in which there was nothing to be done but eat without being hungry and loiter about without anything to see, next followed, and her admiration of the style in which they travelled, of the fashionable chase and four, postillions handsomely liveried, rising so regularly in their stirrups, and numerous outriders properly mounted sunk a little under this consequent inconvenience. Had their party been perfectly agreeable, the delay would have been nothing. But General Tilney, though so charming a man, seemed always a check upon his children's spirits, and scarcely anything was said but by himself, the observation of which, with his discontent at whatever the inn afforded, and his angry impatience with the waiters, made Catherine grow every moment more in awe of him, and appeared to lengthen the two hours into four. At last, however, the order of release was given, and much was Catherine then surprised by the general's proposal of her taking his place in his son's curricle for the rest of the journey. The day was fine, and he was anxious for her seeing as much of the country as possible. So in this chapter, over halfway through the book, we're finally going to go to Northanger Abbey, which is what the book is named after. So that's pretty exciting. So this starts off with Mr. and Mrs. Allen sending her off to go to the Tilneys to have breakfast with them before they head out. And Mr. Allen is the one who takes her over to their lodgings. And Catherine is immediately overwhelmed by the attention of the general and very fearful of not being liked, of not doing the right thing. But Miss Tilney's manners and Henry's smile soon did away some of her unpleasant feelings. So she's a little bit better, but she's not at all at ease. And, some, and she's also very uncomfortable with 
the general's attention towards her. So he seems to be overly, again, complimenting her and overly worried about that she's eating enough and that she likes the food and that there's something, you know, a dish that she particularly enjoys on the table. And that seems to make her even more nervous because she doesn't know what to do with all this, like, over-the-top attention from the general. And so it's very nice there. It's much, she says that she's never in her life beheld half such variety on a breakfast table. So they've got a lot of food. Um, and I think at the time it's pretty common for them just to have a number of dishes all out on the table and you kind of buffet style serve yourself from all those different dishes. So what she's saying is there's so many different choices on the table of so many different things. She's never seen people have this much food, like different types of dishes for breakfast out and so obviously there's something she wants but she's overwhelmed by how nice it is how grand it is and the general is making it even worse by just being overly like on top of her like do you like the food are you eating enough giving her compliments all this stuff just making her feel very awkward in this whole situation and she said it says she felt utterly unworthy of such respect and knew not how to reply to it and the other thing that's making her uncomfortable is in between all these, like, over too many compliments to her, the general is also making it very clear that he's unhappy with his eldest son because his eldest son is not yet down for breakfast, so he's running late. And as we will find out throughout, the general does not enjoy it when you are not punctual. Punctuality is very important to him. And so when his eldest son, Captain Tilney, finally comes down, he gets a really strong reprimand from the general. And that makes Catherine up, upset as well and uncomfortable, especially because the general is using her to say how, how rude Captain Tilney has been and making her the principal cause, it says, of the lecture. And so she felt sad for Captain Tilney and compassion for him. And without, being able, and without being able to hope for his goodwill. So she's worried that Captain Tilney will be mad at her because of this lecture he's getting from his father. And his father's blaming on her and the rudeness towards her. So it's just all around not good feelings for this. And she notices that Captain Tilney just listens in silence, doesn't try to defend himself at all. And that makes her even more worried because she's thinking that... Maybe he was kept up all night, he didn't sleep well because he's too busy thinking about Isabella. And then maybe that's why he's rising late and he doesn't want to talk about it. Which I think is really jumping a little too far. I think her imagination is running away with her just a bit there. I get why she would think that, because she thinks he's in love with her. I don't think he actually is in love with her. Um, and I doubt that he's losing sleep over her. So I don't think that that's true. I think he just knows that there's no reason to bother trying to defend himself with the general because the general won't hear any of his defenses anyway it's better to just take it in silence and move on but that's not what Catherine sees so it was the first it says it's the first time of her being decidedly in his company which i think just means it's the first time she's in a small group like with him actually being in a chance to like talk to him because before she's always seen him in the pump room or in, at a ball where there's lots and lots of people around and she doesn't really interact with him specifically. She just kind of sees him in a crowded room. This is the first time that they are, you know, in a much smaller setting together. 
And she's hoping to get a better uh, feel for him. But she doesn't really because he doesn't talk at all. The only thing she hears him say is the little whisper to Eleanor about saying, how glad I shall be when you are all off. So she gets no further, like, ability to see what kind of character he's got or dig into him at all. And then they're off. And it's not pleasant to get out because the general is mad again that they are not on time. Because he wanted to leave at 10 o'clock. But they're still just bringing the car the trunks down when the clock strikes 10. And they put the his great coat in the wrong place. And he thinks there's too many things in the carriage. And the middle seat hasn't been let out even though there's going to be three people sitting there. And he just finds all these things to nitpick and yell at the servants about. Um, which does not at all sound pleasant. And... There's a funny little line about how she had difficulty saving her own new writing desk from being thrown out into the street because the general was mad about how much stuff was in the carriage. However, at last, everything is packed away and they set off. The three ladies, so Miss Tilney, her maid, and Catherine are in the carriage, and the two gentlemen, Henry Tilney and his father, are in the curricle behind. And now Miss Tilney, now Catherine feels a lot better because she is happy in the company of Miss Tilney, and so of an abbey before and a curricle behind, she caught the last view of Bath with, without any regret. So she's not sad to be leaving Bath, even though she really enjoyed her time in Bath, because she's so excited to be going to the abbey and the curricle behind, she's so excited to be spending more time with Henry Tilney. And so the, this ride is going really happily and very quickly. She says she sees met with every milestone before she expected it. So the, the ride with Miss Tilney in the carriage, having a great time. And then they end up at a two-hour wait at Petit France, which is just a place where you can stop, I think, in, in between. And they have to stay there for two hours. And there was nothing to do but eat without being hungry and loiter about without anything to see. So she's bored. She's sitting around for two hours. They're letting the horses rest. And so... It's inconvenient, and how her admiration of, you know, the the horse, the yeah, the carriage and four the chase and four, and all the servants and everything they're traveling with, is sinking a little bit under how inconvenient it is to have such a large entourage and it takes so long, and then have to wait for two hours. But she's also saying that had their party been perfectly agreeable, the delay would have been nothing. So, the problem is not necessarily just the two hours. I think. Catherine is a good enough per in good enough spirits that two hours wouldn't have meant much to her. The problem is the general, although she's still not quite sure about it. Because she says, The general Tilney, though a so charming a man, always seemed always a check upon his children's spirits, and scarcely anything was said but by himself. So when she really likes Henry Tilney and Eleanor Tilney, but when their father's around, neither of them say anything. They both kind of just sit in silence. And so then you just have to listen to the general talk. And it's not, not happy. And it goes on to say that, you know, when you're observing just the general talk, he's just talking about how discontent he is at everything. At whatever the Innafor did. And angry impatience with the waiters made Catherine grow every moment more in awe of him. And I'm going to say that there, that here Jane Austen is using the word awe differently than how I would use it or how I think it's more usually used now. Because when I think of the word awe, I think 
that you are in awe of someone, meaning that you think they are good and important. Like, they're important in a good way. I have it with a general, like, positive connotation. Whereas I think she's using it in awe in that you have high respect for someone, but not necessarily in a good way. More like you're scared of them. So high, high acknowledgement of their importance, but in a more negative connotation than I would usually use that word with is how I'm reading this. And being with him seemed to lengthen those two hours into four. Which, ouch. She, and we've gotten this feeling from the general before, but I think this is the first time we're really seeing him interact, especially with people of the lower classes, and we're seeing that he is not nice to them. So the, one of the lines that really got my attention was the angry impatience at the waiters. And I've heard this sort of thing before, and I think it's a the kind of line of, you know, you can judge someone by how they treat the waitstaff. And I think it's pretty true that people who are rude to servers and, you know, like the servant so-called class of the time and currently of the people working in service jobs, people who are rude to them, it tells you something about their character that they're like that. And so I think it tells us something about the general that he is obviously, we've seen him now screaming at his own servants and acting with angry impatience at the servants working at the hotel, or the stop, wherever they're at. Um, so, I'm not feeling good about the general with this description. He is not coming off as a great dude here. And I think that that's an important thing to watch. But, the end of this section, Catherine gets a very nice surprise where the general proposes that she ride in the curricle with Henry for the second half of the journey because it's a fine day and he wants her to see as much of the country as possible. And so that's exciting. And we go on. The remembrance of Mr. Allen's opinion respecting young men's open carriages made her blush at the mention of such a plan and her first thought was to decline it. But her second was of greater deference for General Tilney's judgment. He could not propose anything improper for her, and in the course of a few minutes she found herself with Henry in the curricle, as happy a being as ever existed. A very short trial convinced her that a curricle was the prettiest equipage in the world. The chase and four wheeled off with some grandeur, to be sure, but it was a heavy and troublesome business and she could not easily forget that having stopped two hours at Petit France, half the time would have been enough for the curricle, and so nimbly were the light horses disposed to move that, had not the general chosen to have his own carriage lead the way, they could have passed it with ease in half a minute. But the merit of the curricle did not all belong to the horses. Henry drove so well, so quietly, without making any disturbance, without parading to her, or swearing at them, so different from the only gentleman coachman whom it was in her power to compare him with. And then his hat sat so well, and the innumerable capes of his greatcoat looked so becomingly important. To be driven by him, next to being dancing with him, was certainly the greatest happiness in the world. In addition to every other delight, she had now that of listening to her own praise, of being thanked at least on his sister's account, for her kindness in thus becoming her visitor, of hearing it ranked as real friendship, 
and described as creating real gratitude. His sister, he said, was uncomfortably circumstanced. She had no female companion, and, in the frequent absence of her father, was sometimes without any companion at all. But how can that be, said Catherine? Are not you with her? Northanger is not more than half my home. I have an establishment at my own house in Woodston, which is nearly twenty miles from my father's, and some of my time is necessarily spent there. How sorry you must be for that. I am always sorry to leave Eleanor. Yes, but beside your affection for her, you must be so fond of the Abbey. After being used to such a home as the Abbey, an ordinary parsonage house must be very disagreeable. He smiled and said, You have formed a very favorable idea of the Abbey. To be sure I have. Is not it a fine old place, just like what one reads about? And are you prepared to encounter all the horrors that a building such as what one reads about may produce? Have you a stout heart? Nerves fit for sliding panels and tapestry? Oh, yes! I do not think I should be easily frightened, because there would be so many people in the house. And besides, it has never been uninhabited and left deserted for years, and then the family come back to it unawares, without giving any notice, as generally happens. No, certainly. We shall not have to explore our way into a hall dimly lighted by the expiring embers of a wood fire, nor be obliged to spread our beds on the floor of a room without windows, doors, or furniture. But you must be aware that when a young lady is, by whatever means, introduced into a dwelling of this kind, she is always lodged apart from the rest of the family. While they snugly repair to their own end of the house, she is formally conducted by Dorothy, the ancient housekeeper up a different staircase, and along many gloomy passages into an apartment never used since some cousin or kin died in it about twenty years before. Can you stand such a ceremony as this? Will not your mind misgive you when you find yourself in this gloomy chamber, too lofty and extensive for you, with only the feeble rays of a single lamp to take in its size, its walls hung with tapestry exhibiting figures as large as life, and the bed of dark green stuff or purple velvet, presenting even a funereal appearance? Will not your heart sink within you? Oh, but this will not happen to me, I am sure. How fearfully will you examine the furniture of your apartment, and what will you discern? not tables, toilets, wardrobes, or drawers, but on one side perhaps the remains of a broken lute, on the other a ponderous chest which no efforts can open, and over the fireplace the portrait of some handsome warrior whose features will so incomprehensibly strike you that you will not be able to withdraw your eyes from it. Dorothy, meanwhile, no less struck by your appearance, gazes at you in great agitation and drops a few unintelligible hints to raise your spirits moreover. She gives you reason to suppose that the part of the abbey you inhabit is undoubtedly haunted, and informs you that you will not have a single domestic within call. With this parting cordial she curtsies off, you listen to the sound of her receding footsteps as long as the last echo can reach you, and when, with fainting spirits, you attempt to fasten your door, you discover, with increased alarm, that it has no lock. Oh, Mr. Tilney, how frightful! This is just like a book, but it cannot really happen to me. I'm sure your housekeeper is not really Dorothy. Well, what then? Nothing further to alarm, perhaps, may occur the first night. After surmounting your unconquerable horror of the bed, you will retire to rest and get a few hours' unquiet slumber. But on the second, or at farthest the third night after your arrival, you will probably have a violent storm. Peals of thunder so loud as to seem to shake the edifice to its foundation will roll round the neighboring mountains, 
and during the frightful gusts of wind which accompany it, you will probably think you discern, for your lamp is not extinguished, one part of the hanging more violently agitated than the rest. Unable, of course, to repress your curiosity in so favorable a moment for indulging it, you will instantly arise and, throwing your dressing-gown around you, proceed to examine this mystery. After a very short search, you will discover a division in the tapestry so artfully constructed as to defy the minutest inspection, and on opening it, a door will immediately appear. Which door, being secured only by massy bars and a padlock, you will, after a few efforts, succeed in opening, and, with your lamp in your hand, will pass through it into a small vaulted room. No, indeed, I should be much too frightened to do any such thing. What? Not when Dorothy has given you to understand that there is a secret subterraneous communication between your apartment and the chapel of St. Anthony, scarcely two miles off. Could you shrink from so simple an adventure? No, no. You will proceed into this small vaulted room, and through this into several others without perceiving anything very remarkable in either. In one, perhaps, there may be a dagger, in another a few drops of blood, and in a third the remains of some instrument of torture. But there being nothing in all of this out of the common way, and your lamp being nearly exhausted, you will return toward your own apartment. In repassing through the small vaulted room, however, your eyes will be attracted towards a large, old-fashioned cabinet of ebony and gold, which, though narrowly examining the furniture before, you had passed unnoticed. Impelled by an irresistible presentiment, you will eagerly advance to it, unlock its folding doors, and search into every drawer but for some time without discovering anything of importance, perhaps nothing but a considerable hoard of diamonds. At last, however, by touching a secret spring, an inner compartment will open. A roll of paper appears. You seize it. It contains many sheets of manuscript. You hasten with the precious treasure into your own chamber, but scarcely have you been able to decipher, O oh, thou, whomsoever thou mayst be, into whose hands these memoirs of the wretched Matilda may fall, when your lamp suddenly expires in the socket and leaves you in total darkness. Oh, no, no, do not say so. Well, go on. But Henry was too much amused by the interest he had raised to be able to carry it farther. He could no longer command solemnity either of subject or voice and was obliged to entreat her to use her own fancy in the perusal of Matilda's woes. Catherine, recollecting herself, grew ashamed of her eagerness and began earnestly to assure him that her attention had been fixed without the smallest apprehension of really meeting with what he related. Miss Tilney, she was sure, would never put her into such a chamber as he had described. She was not at all afraid. As they drew near the end of their journey, her impatience for a sight of the abbey, for sometimes suspended by his conversation on subjects very different, returned in full force, and every bend in the road was expected with solemn awe to afford a glimpse of its massy walls of grey stone rising in mist a grove of ancient oaks, with the last beams of the sun playing in beautiful splendor on its high Gothic windows. But so low did the building stand that she found herself passing through the great gates of the lodge into the very grounds of Northanger, without having discerned even an antique chimney. She knew not that she had any right to be surprised, but there was a something in this mode of approach which she certainly had not expected. To pass between lodges of a modern appearance, to find herself with such ease in the very precincts of the abbey, and driven so rapidly along a smooth, level road of fine gravel, without obstacle, alarm, or solemnity of any kind, struck her as odd and inconsistent. She was not long at leisure, however, for such considerations, 
A sudden scud of rain driving full force in her face made it impossible for her to observe anything further, and fixed all her thoughts on the welfare of her new straw bonnet. And she was actually under the abbey walls, was springing with Henry's assistance from the carriage, was beneath the shelter of the old porch, and had even passed on to the hall, where her friend and the general were waiting to welcome her, without feeling one awful foreboding of future misery to herself, or one moment's suspicion of any past scenes of horror being acted within the solemn edifice. The breeze had not seemed to waft the sighs of the murdered to her. It had wafted nothing worse than a thick, mizzling rain, and having given a good shake to her habit, she was ready to be shown into the common drawing-room, and capable of considering where she was. So this next section, Catherine first has her first thought of thinking about how Mr. Allen thought it was inappropriate for a young woman to be in an open carriage with a man by herself. Um, so she at first thought she should decline it, but she quickly rationalizes to herself that, that General Tilney wouldn't suggest it if he thought it was improper at all, and so she'll give greater deference to General Tilney's judgment. And also just she really wants to go on the ride with Henry, so she's not going to say no to spending time with him and having him, you know, stuck in a carriage with her for a couple hours all the way the rest of the way to Northanger Abbey. So she's quickly finds herself in the curricle with Henry, as happy a being as ever existed. So she's very excited. And as she goes off, she finds that Henry drove so well, so quietly, without making any disturbance, without parading to her or swearing at them. So different from the only gentleman coachman whom it was in her power to compare him with. Which is obviously bringing up Mr. Thorpe, and she is finding Henry to be a much better carriage driver than Mr. Thorpe. He's much quieter about it. He's not cursing the whole time and not putting on, said, without parading. So he's not trying to show off for her. He's just driving the carriage. And uh, so she's much happier with him. And then she also just thinks he's handsome. She talks about his hat and his coat, making him look so becomingly important. And she thinks to be driven by him next to being dancing with him was certainly the greatest happiness in the world. And she's even more happy because he is also praising her, which she loves to hear, especially from Henry Tilney, saying that, you know, it's so nice of her to come spend time with his sister and that since her sis his sister, you know, is the only female, she's often alone at Northanger Abbey, so it'll be really nice for her to have a companion. And this is when she finds out that Henry doesn't live at Northanger Abbey full time, and that's why his sister is often alone, that he actually has his own house in Woodston, um, where he spends at least some of his time, which comes back to at the very beginning we learned he was a clergyman. Henry Tilney is a clergyman. So this house he has is probably a parsonage house. Um, and I think she even says it later that he lives in a parsonage house. So he's got a living very similar to Catherine's father, where he's got a house that's kind of attached to his job as a parson. But he obviously doesn't spend all his time there, and we'll see as we go on. He obviously isn't there every Sunday regularly, so he has to have somebody else who's there being kind of the 
priest who gives the Sunday service regularly, I'm assuming, um, which I think is pretty common at the time that you would hire, that they had too many clergy people, so it was kind of a fight for position, and there were plenty of people who would come in as like underlings, basically, and do the service without having the official role of parson for the area, which came with more money. So Henry kind of has the main job and then is outsourcing it to somebody else to come in and do the do his job for a lot less than he's getting paid to do it. Not particularly fair, but that is how the system worked at the time. I doubt it works like that anymore. But in any case, he says some of my time is necessarily spent there. And Catherine says how sad that is and how it must be so sad to leave the abbey for an ordinary parsonage house. Which makes Henry laugh and he says you've had a very formed a very formed favorable idea of the abbey. She says that she has. It must be a fine old place just like one reads about. And this puts Henry off on his little, I don't know, storytelling time where he goes off on this long thing about all the horrors she's going to find in the house and things about going to a room without windows, doors, or furniture. So we don't know how they got in there, but okay. Um, walking through a dimly lighted a hall dimly lighted by the expiring embers of a wood fire and an ancient housekeeper named Dorothy taking you along gloomy passages into an apartment never used since some cousin or kid died, kin died in it about 20 years ago. And all the, you know, going through a lot of very descriptive language that honestly, Jane Austen doesn't usually use as much. She doesn't like go into such specific descriptions of most of the rooms and things and houses and places in her books um she only describes as it's very important to know so she'll describe something as very grand or imposing but not get into the details of what exactly it looks like so henry here is using much more descriptive language than she usually would and it's another kind of nod back to that this is supposed to kind of be making fun of gothic novels and he's using language that's pulled directly from these gothic novels of this ancient housekeeper taking her through and finding this hidden passage and hidden rooms and a chest that you can't open and all this stuff a painting that you can't stop looking at or somebody in the painting seems to be staring at you and, you know, being left in this faraway room with not a single domestic, so a single servant within call. Um, a door that won't lock. And all the, a secret passage that leads to a church away. All this stuff. And um, a lot of this, I believe, is language even specifically kind of pulled and reused from the Mysteries of Udolfo. So he's specifically using stuff that is that is from that novel. And just the feel of gothic novels in general in this kind of story. He's weaving her about the horrors she's going to find when she gets to Northanger Abbey. And she's just bumps in every once in a while to say, oh, that'll be that would be horrible. No, that won't really happen. Go on. And at the end, she finally says, oh, no, no, don't say so. Well, go on. 
but Henry was too much amused by the interest he had raised to be able to carry it farther. So Henry is enjoying this little joke with her and telling her this scary story, basically. But uh, then he's laughing too hard to keep it up. <laughs> and so he just ends his story abruptly and says she has to think about it herself to figure out the rest of it. And Catherine then says she grew ashamed of her eagerness. Which I don't get why she's ashamed by this. Henry's teasing her and telling her a story and she got into it. I don't see what's so shameful about that. I mean, and I don't, I mean, she's saying that she wants to earnestly assure him that her attention had been fixed without the smallest apprehension of really meeting with what he related. So she's very worried to make sure that he knows she was playing along and she was enjoying the story, but she didn't actually think it was true. But I don't get why he would think she was. Like, I, I don't know. I just feel like she's a little too over-nervous about it. Which, I mean, she's trying to make Henry like her. She wants to be agreeable to him. She doesn't want him to think her silly. So I kind of get why, why she's like that. I just don't really agree with it. I don't think there's any reason she should have to apologize for that. In any case, after this, we have arriving at the Abbey... And now she's looking for it with great anticipation, wanting to see this beautiful old building with the gothic high windows and everything. But then they get really, really close and they go through the great gates of the lodge onto the very grounds of Northanger. So through the like edges of the park and past the gates and everything, and into the grounds itself, and she hasn't see, discerned even an antique chimney, which is really a letdown. And she's getting closer, and, you know, the lodges are modern in appearance, which she's not very happy about, and the road is very smooth and level of fine gravel, which means that it's well-maintained and new. There's nothing ancient and falling apart about it, which is what she wants. But she doesn't get a chance to really see what the outside of the abbey looks like because it starts to rain and she gets rain in her face and it's just very quickly running into the house and or under the overhang so that she doesn't get too soaking wet. But she soon ends up inside the the abbey without really having any foreboding. It based, it's got some funny language here. So she got into the abbey without feeling one awful foreboding of future misery to herself or one moment's suspicion of any past scenes of horror being acted within the solemn edifice. And the breeze had not seemed to waft the sighs of the murder to her. And she just seems to be in a normal building and she didn't get any like premonition of horror or anything, which is what she's expecting from these gothic novels of this, you know, ancient abbey. So, she had a very nice ride with Henry, but she's a little disappointed in the house because it's too nice and new. And she didn't really get to see what the outside looks like, but in this next little section we'll get to see a little bit of what the inside looks like. An abbey? Yes, it was delightful to be really in an abbey, but she doubted as she looked around the room whether anything within her observation would have given her the consciousness. The furniture was in all the profusion of elegance and of modern taste. The fireplace, where she had expected the ample width and ponderous carving of former times, was contracted to a rumford, 
with slabs of plain though handsome marble, and ornaments over it of the prettiest English china. The windows, to which she looked with peculiar dependence, from having heard the general talk of his preserving them in their gothic form with reverential care, were yet less what her fancy had portrayed. To be sure, the pointed arch was preserved. The form of them was gothic. They might be even casements. But every pane was so large, so clear, so light, to an imagination which had hoped for the smallest divisions and the heaviest stonework for painted glass, dirt, and cobwebs. The difference was very distressing. The general, perceiving her how her eye was employed, began to talk of the smallness of the room and simplicity of the furniture, where everything being for daily use pretended only to comfort, etc., flattering himself, however, that there were some apartments in the abbey not unworthy of her notice, and was proceeding to mention the costly gilding in one in particular, when, taking out his watch, he stopped short to pronounce it with surprise, within twenty minutes of five. This seemed the word of separation, and Catherine found herself hurried away by Miss Tilney in such a manner as convinced her that the strictest punctuality to the family hours would be expected at Northanger. Returning through the large and lofty hall, they ascended a broad staircase of shining oak, which, after many flights and many landing-places, brought them upon a long, wide gallery. On one side it had a range of doors, and it was lighted on the other by windows which Catherine had only time to discover looked into a quadrangle, before Miss Tilney led the way into a chamber, and scarcely staying to hope she would find it comfortable, left her with an anxious entreaty that she would make as little alteration as possible to her dress. <laughs> So in this last section, we finally get to see a little bit about the abbey. She's really excited to be in an actual abbey, but she's looking around the room and thinking that just from the room that she's currently in, the drawing room, she would never have known she was in some ancient Gothic building. And the furniture was all in the profusion of elegance and modern taste. And the fireplace was modern and new and not some ancient old thing and just normal. The windows, which she had been really excited about, to have that old-fashioned glass that was really thick and hard to see through, or um, have it be painted glass of some kind to see dirt and cobwebs and everything is what she wants. And instead, it's very clean and plain and modern-looking and modern glass in the windows and everything. And the difference between what she was expecting and what she actually saw was very distressing. And I think this is something that we'll, I, we'll get into later in later chapters when we actually go through the Catherine getting to really get a tour of the Abbey. But it's something that always bothers me with the adaptations that I've seen. That the whole point of this is that the general has redone the inside of the Abbey to be very modern and clean and fresh looking. It doesn't look like an ancient old abbey, and that makes Catherine sad. And one adaptation in particular I'm thinking of, they really lean into this being an old, like, decaying, classic building that's very old-fashioned and everything. And that's exactly the opposite of what the novel is portraying. It's that that's what 
in her mind, in Catherine's head, she was going to go to this ancient ruin of a place and be very excited by how old and gothic and epic it all was. But instead, it's just a, a pretty modern-feeling building because the general's, like, redone it all and made it very nice and comfortable. And that makes her sad. So the general, seeing her look around begins to boast about the house and saying that this room that they're in is not so exciting because it's, you know, for daily use, so it's only for comfort. But, you know, there are some other rooms that are much grander and she'll see them later. And then he looks at his watch, notices it's only, it's 20 minutes to five, and that sends everyone off in a scurry because they've got to hurry away. And Miss Tilney hurries Catherine into her room and tells her to make as little alteration as possible to her dress because they all need to be back to dinner by five. And as we've already noticed, the general is very big on punctuality. He does not like his dinner to be held at all. So they've all got to eat. They've all got to get changed very, very quickly. They've only got 20 minutes to change and get back in time for dinner at five or the general will be mad. In any case, I think that, well, that's the end of chapter five is she's left in her room to change for dinner. And overall, what we've learned in this chapter is we've gotten some more insight into the general and the type of person he is. And we've learned that he, even though he's been overly solicitous and nice and complimentary to Catherine, we see that he doesn't seem to be that way to anybody else. We've seen him yell at his eldest son for being late to breakfast. We've seen him yell at all his servants for not being getting the carriage, you know, ready to go on time that they are a couple minutes late there. We've seen him yell at the inn staff for we're not even sure why, just he's mad at them and mad at the world in general because nothing's quite up to his standards. So we're seeing this real dichotomy in the way the general is acting, which I think is important to see in the way he's acting towards Catherine versus the way he's acting towards everyone else. And I think that despite how overly nice he's being to Catherine, he does not seem to give that sort of respect to anyone else that we've seen to this point. And I think that it's notable and it's really notable to see how he acts to people that he believes to be below him. So the servants, both his and the ones working at the inn, we have seen him be very rude to consistently throughout this chapter. And I think that that's something important to mark as concern for his character and we've seen that Catherine has had kind of concern has felt uncomfortable with him this whole time she's had kind of a gut feeling that something's wrong that she doesn't like the general she can't put her finger on why because he's super nice to her but she's not really buying it and she's still concerned and I think we kind of should be as well and should kind of honor her gut feeling that something's off with the general as something that should be paid attention to. Um, and then we also get, you know, getting to see the Abbey itself. We haven't seen the outside yet to see what kind of, how the outside of the Abbey looks, but the inside, at least what we've seen so far, is all modern and dead up and not at all what Catherine expected. And she's a little sad about that. We'll see how that goes on. And when she gets to see a tour and see more of the building, whether that continues or whether she's more happy with it. And we shall continue on with her dinner with the Tilneys. 
in the next chapter when we come back next time for chapter six. Feel free to join the conversation. My email and Twitter are in the description. Please get in touch. Let me know what you think about the podcast or Northanger Abbey or Jane Austen in general. Love to hear your comments and I will see you next time.